The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the ninth chapter. <clears throat> Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Rabbi, Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It is Transfiguration Sunday, which comes our way every year. That's the last Sunday of the Epiphany season. And Epiphany, I reminded you when the season began, is one of those aha moments when something that wasn't clear oftentimes suddenly becomes clear, at which point you might even literally say, aha, I just had an Epiphany. During the church's Epiphany season, we've seen sometimes, this year as presented in Mark's Gospel, in which people began to see that Jesus, Joseph and Mary's boy, was something more than just that. And in Mark's Gospel, it is Peter who is the first one to say that by something more than just that, he meant that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the one prophets had foretold God would one day send to save God's people. When Peter said that, Jesus said seemingly the darndest thing when what he said to Peter was, don't tell anybody that. And in Mark's Gospel, it's not the only time Jesus says that, which is why when scholars comment on particular traits or characteristics of Mark's Gospel, one of them, as, as Pastor Sarah mentioned last week, is that it is a fast-paced Gospel with, with Mark over and over again saying something happened and then immediately this happened and then immediately something else happened and then immediately something else happened. But another characteristic oft mentioned about Mark's Gospel is this motif of what has come to be known as the Messianic secret evidenced by the fact that the very first verse of his gospel, Mark tells the reader that this is his story of the good news of Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God, but in the course of going on to tell his story, every single time someone in the story begins to be having an epiphany and figuring that out, he tells them to be quiet about it, not to tell. And so, when just a few years, verses before our text for today, Peter did say, you are the Messiah, Mark then writes, quote, Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him, unquote. A friend of mine, tongue-in-cheek, mostly, uh, said he's pretty sure Lutherans have taken that as their evangelism strategy ever since. Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. What's actually up with that, do you think? Hold on to that question. We're going to come back to it. 
After telling them to keep quiet about him being the Messiah, Jesus then goes on to say, Mark says, that Jesus then for the very first time said, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. At which point Peter then rebukes him for thinking like that. Not on my watch you aren't, he says essentially. At which point Jesus then rebukes Peter saying to him essentially get the hell behind me, Satan. Here I think is the first clear hint of what's going on with this messianic secret thing. This recurring theme of every time someone does begin to figure out who Jesus is, they're told not to say anything to anyone about that. The reason I'm pretty sure is because not only have the Jews been waiting for centuries and centuries for God to send this Messiah, the promised one who would save them, in those centuries they've also attached a pretty strong set of expectations to what that Messiah God sends was going to do when he came to save them and the primary expectation seemingly being that by and large this um, king this Messiah would be a king like David of an earthly kingdom like David's who will command an army as did David who will drive their enemies in this case the Romans into the sea Peter, though he gave the exact right answer to the question of who Jesus is, nevertheless is silenced by Jesus about that because he doesn't yet know what Jesus being who he is will look like and mean as he goes on to do not what is expected or wanted but what he came to do. Because many expected and wanted and even, even in a few cases in scripture tried forcibly to make him a king who of course would hate the same people they do, their enemies. But he comes to be a savior who will love their enemies and call them to do the same. Then he tells them that just as being him will mean dying on a cross, so too following him will mean taking up in one way or another a cross of your own as well. For his ways are not the ways of the world. His ways are the ways of the healing and saving of the world from sin and its ways and from ourselves and our ways. For it is not the thinking of the powerful God who alone is God, it is the thinking of the powers and gods of this world that healing will occur when all Romans or Palestinians or Jews are driven into the dirt or into the sea or that being great again will occur when all people of color are driven back either to where they came from or back to a time when they knew their place. Jesus wants people to be silent, not to talk about him, to shut up about who he is until they know what being who he is truly means as opposed to what they want it to mean. I thought that very same thing this week when I saw again an image of Jesus robed in an American flag and carrying an assault rifle. Shut up, I want to say. Delete that, I want to say. For you may know the name of Jesus, but for Christ's sake, don't use that name if those are the kinds of things you're going to say or post in his name. Moving on. After he tells them not about his military or worldly glory, but rather about his cross, 
as well as the kinds of crosses those who truly follow him may find themselves expected to carry too, something quite unique in Mark's gospel happens. And because it's so unique in Mark's gospel, I want to think it has to be meaningful. Talking about the fact that what happens next, which is at the beginning of our text for today, doesn't happen immediately, as almost everything does in Mark's gospel, but happens rather after six days, which I take to be Mark's cue to us, his readers, and Jesus' cue to the disciples, his hearers, to take what he just said about the cross he would bear and the crosses of one kind or another those who truly follow him might be called to bear and to let that soak in. For six days, maybe even for 40 days, the length of the upcoming season of Lent. And so, Mark says, six days do pass with nothing more for them or us to think about except what he's just given them to think about, a Messiah who will heal and save by suffering and dying. At which point, says our text for today, Jesus takes Peter and John with him to the top of a high mountain where we have this story as what is, what is known as the story of the transfiguration as he is transfigured, changed, metamorphed, if you want to get closer to the original Greek word, before their very eyes as his clothes become dazzling white and in Matthew's version, his face glows in the dark, <clears throat> not with a light that is like the light of the moon, but rather with light that is like the light of the sun, which is to say this is not light like moonlight reflecting off of him. If this in this moment is the unveiled and unfiltered light that is him. At which point, suddenly, there's Mark back in form, suddenly, he says, they see Moses and Elijah standing there with him. A note, the Jewish scriptures, what Christians refer to often as the Old Testament, were sometimes summarized as the law and the prophets. Moses was the law. Elijah was the prophet who, says our first reading, died, didn't actually ever die, but was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire which swung low, coming for to carry him home. And Elijah also, another prophet said, was the prophet that God would send back to his people when God at last would send the promised Messiah and Savior. So here now, come together on this mountain, are Moses and Elijah, the Old Testament, and Jesus the new. At which point Peter says, Rabbi, it's a good thing we're here. Let us make three dwellings, three memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He says this, Mark says, because he didn't know what to say. Oh, the things we say when we often don't know what to say. And oftentimes, as it turns out, it would have been better not to say anything. Peter's suggestion was ignored. A common, 
interpretation of that is that Peter wanted to preserve this mountaintop experience, stay here on this glorious mountain, uh, stay here above and apart from the troubles and suffering of the world below, but Jesus ignored him because he wanted them and he himself to know this mountaintop experience as something that would drive them and empower them back into their mission and work in the world, in the, in the troubled and suffering world below. And I imagine that that is, in fact, probably part of the reason that Jesus ignored Peter's suggestion that these three permanent dwellings or memorials or tabernacles be built there on that glorious mountain. But I think there's more, too, and I think it's bigger than that. I base that on what happens next, because what happens next is that this cloud descends upon the top of that mountain and engulfs them. Bible study note. More than once in the Old Testament, God was said to be present revealing God's self on mountaintops. And when God did so, the visible evidence more than once were mountaintop clouds and fiery bright light. The most well-known of those times being when Moses, more than a thousand years earlier, was on a mountaintop where God revealed to him all of the law, including the Ten Commandments. And when the Israelites down in the valley below looked up at the mountaintop, what it says they saw was a cloud glowing in the dark. And when he came down, having been in the presence of God, Moses' face was glowing too, which not surprisingly really creeped people out, and so he wore a veil. In the Gospel reading, it was Peter, James, and John who were terrified, first when they saw the glory of God unveiled in the face of Jesus, and even more so when that cloud not only descended onto them, but then spoke to them, saying, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. And then says Mark, Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them but Jesus only. And here we get to the other reason, the greater reason, I think, that Peter's suggestion to build those three dwellings or memorials or tabernacles was ignored, because to build three shrines for Moses and Elijah and Jesus would be to treat them as equals, when equals they are precisely not. For the law guided the people while waiting for the Savior, Messiah, and the prophets preached to the people by promising the coming of a Savior, Messiah, but Jesus was, Jesus is the Savior, Messiah. And he alone is the one glowing in the dark. They, Moses and Elijah, are merely glowing in his glow. For here's the truth of Transfiguration's Mount. Jesus outshines the law and the prophets, in many cases by fulfilling them, in some cases by overriding or overruling or even correcting them. Which is something Pastor Sarah pointed to last week when she said that though the law did say you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath, Jesus did anyway. For he came to tell people and show people that the most holy way to honor the Sabbath is not by following religious rules, but by loving your neighbor. The same truth is seen in even more startling, stark, uh, starkly in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus literally took Bible verses, took words of Moses, and then said, I'm going to change those. Imagine me saying, here's what the Bible says. Nah, here's what I say. It's not a surprise Jesus offended people sometimes. When he said, for example, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, 
turn the other as well. Donald Trump says his favorite Bible verse is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Vengeance is mine is his very thinly veiled message. Vote for him if you must, but do so knowing that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount repealed that verse. For Jesus' ways are not the ways of the world. They are the ways of the healing of the world. They are not the ways of vengeance, but the ways of mercy. They are not the ways of the law. They are the ways of love, which alone can fulfill the law, even when, as he himself showed, that might sometimes mean breaking some rules when they are rules which have become elevated above love. Which takes us to our text's concluding verse. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen, which no longer surprises us because we are now all savvy Gospel of Mark readers who understand this messianic secret motif. Except this time Jesus doesn't stop by saying, keep it a secret, because the whole verse goes like this. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Do you see what just happened there? Don't tell isn't the final word regarding this Messiah. But what he says here is don't tell until. Until what? Until after you have seen what is to be seen, not on this Mount of the Transfiguration, but rather on a Mount called Golgotha where this one who alone and above all is the one to be listened to will listen to religious leaders and crowds demanding his death and a government leader sentencing him to death and a military leader, a centurion, commanding his soldiers brutally to flog and then nail him unto death on a cross which the centurion had surely done many times before, probably more times than he could count. But this time wouldn't be like any of those other times. So dramatically so that when the last breath came, this centurion, this military man, said, facing the cross, truly, this man was God's son. And then for the first and only time in Mark's gospel, when this centurion is the one who has this epiphany and now says out loud and accurately who Jesus is, Jesus doesn't say, don't tell. Because he's dead, of course. But because too now, with his death, there's something to tell. The Son of God loving the world, loving sinners, loving you to death. Loving you to hell and back. Loving you to a tomb which will prove ultimately unable to contain him. So that you might know that there is something oh so stronger than the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of every evil power that exists. And that something more powerful is God's love for the world and for you. For Easter will come, and angels and alleluias will announce that love does win. Sisters and brothers, do tell. Amen.